Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, I'm going to start this episode by doing something a little risky. (laughs) Uh, There are so many directions that this could now go in, and I thought I was prepared for the show, and now I'm once again beginning to question that. All right. Well, I'm going to, my risk is that I'm going to ask you an open-ended question. (laughs) That doesn't seem risky for you. It seems risky for me, but go ahead. What do you know about Teach Like a Champion? I know a lot, Jennifer, because I did my homework for this episode, but I am now struggling to figure out how to distill that into like 15 seconds uh, for the opening of the show. So let's just say that um, it is a bit like what teachers learn about in you know an Ed Psych 101 course uh, when they learn about behaviorism, right? This idea of training people to respond in a particular way. Uh, So you can get students to do things in the classroom because they trust you and they believe in you and they believe in what you're all doing together. Or you can get them to do what you want them to do in the classroom because, you know, you're flicking the lights or threatening punishment or demerits or raising your hand in a particular way. Well, the idea for this episode came when you encountered something on Twitter. And I'm hoping that you can just tell us a little bit about what that was and and why you thought it would make a good episode. It started with a tweet thread by Ilana Horn, who's a math education professor at Vanderbilt University. And she just laid out a really clear critique of Teach Like a Champion. And what got me interested in it was just how strongly people on both sides of the argument felt. And even more so, even more interesting to me was the fact that it was a pretty nuanced discussion, uh, you know, rather than people hurling insults at each other. They were actually very clearly talking about the reasons why they either use or reject uh, the set of practices in Teach Like a Champion. And I think it's worth talking about the kind of broader approach to education and to pedagogy and to school organization that Teach Like a Champion is just really symbolic of. Like a lot of people, Alana Horn has been thinking about how and where to challenge what she calls anti-blackness in her world. That would be the world of math, education, and STEM. And so when an African-American physicist named Shonda Weinstein challenged her STEM colleagues to participate in a strike for black lives, Alana wanted to do something. So I really thought about that, and I thought, what's my lane? What's my lane, and where do I see anti-blackness? Doug Lamov's Teach Like a Champion is the number one bestseller in secondary education. When I looked on Amazon and Goodreads, the only one-star reviews I was seeing were things that called it out for having a bad binding or missing a CD or DVD, rather. The perspective of people who have legitimate critiques was not being represented in Amazon reviews and Goodreads reviews. So I encourage people, uh, if they have read the book, if they've purchased the book or received the book at any time and shared my views to air that so that that perspective was also available sort of in the public record that reviews have become and to offer their critiques so that consumers can kind of know, hey, there are people who think that this number one bestseller is racist, that it's carceral, that it's 
um, not humane for children and particularly children of color. Teach Like a Champion, if somehow you haven't heard of it, is Doug Lamov's best-selling guide to the techniques of effective teachers. It's ubiquitous in urban charter schools like the Uncommon Schools, which Lamov helped found and still helps to run. Fast-track certification programs like the Relay Graduate School of Education train new teachers to teach like champions. And it's increasingly making its way into district schools, which is where Ilana encountered it. You know, I spend a lot of time, like, literally going all around the country and spending time in classrooms. And I started to see more and more of this kind of, like, hand-signally, really controlling version of teaching happening that really made me uncomfortable and that I saw kids kind of responding to with discomfort. And digging around, I found out about Teach Like a Champion. I'm certainly not a part of the networks that use that or promote that book. So I did a little more digging. I found a copy of the book. I read it. I started watching some videos and felt incredibly uncomfortable, particularly with the racial optics of it. So five years ago in 2015, I wrote a blog post saying like, whoa, this is a problem. Alana noticed that the style of teaching she was seeing more and more of looked completely different from the math classroom she was used to, starting with what seemed like an outsized attention to time. I was in a classroom once where there was a timer on the front of the room because one of the um, ideas in Teach Like a Champion is that you shouldn't waste any instructional time. And so every little task was carved into an increment of time and the teacher would press the stopwatch and would count down for each aspect of the task. And if students were not focused where the teacher felt they should be, she would give a hand signal to correct them. We mentioned at the outset that Alana is a professor of math education. Well, she's also a learning scientist, which means she's focused on how kids learn. And as she observed and learned about Teach Like a Champion, she kept coming back to one key question. What do all the rules about behavior have to do with learning? As a very wiggly, fidgety person myself, totally unnecessary in terms of Anything I know about learning, and I'm a learning scientist, I study learning, I study how children learn and how teachers learn, there's nothing about being still and docile that helps learning. So it really seemed like a goal that's about control rather than giving children space, allowing children to explore. And there are things that Doug Lamov says, who's the author of Teach Like a Champion, that make it pretty clear that he's not interested in democratic ideals of education. He has worked backward from test scores to develop his, his coding system for like what counts as good teaching. And I just think that's a pretty impoverished way of looking at teaching and learning. Back to the strike for Black Lives that inspired Alana's tweet thread that inspired my co-host that inspired this episode. She made the case that it's time to cancel Teach Like a Champion because it represents, quote unquote, carceral pedagogy. Especially in our current era, there's sort of spectrum, a spectrum of carcerality and carcerality being the control and dominance of bodies. And I see the ethos of Teach Like a Champion, particularly as it's represented in some of the videos that I shared, as being a carceral pedagogy along that carceral spectrum. 
So Jack, as it happens, there's a battle brewing in the Washington, D.C. public schools over exactly what Alana was just describing. A popular African-American principal was fired because she resisted the behavior management approach that we've been hearing about. For example, there's a new rule at her school that students have to pick up their pens within three seconds of starting a writing assignment. And I just want to share a quote from the principal because I, I thought it was so striking. Kids have to sit a certain way. They have to look a certain way. They cannot be who they are, Carolyn Jackson King said. Those are all the ways they teach you in prison. You have to walk in a straight line, hands behind your back, eyes forward. And Jack, the response of district leaders who are big believers in this approach was that it works. They are talking about test scores and what makes them go up. And it really got me thinking that you can justify almost anything if it leads to an increase in test scores. Yeah, absolutely. I was talking with a reporter uh, yesterday who asked me, sort of off the record, you know, how would you make the case for uh, expanded arts programming and creative programs, um, you know, restoring physical education and recess, uh, a full balanced curriculum for the least advantaged, for low-income students and students from historically marginalized racial groups. And my answer to her is my answer to everyone, and that's that if we can imagine that those kids matter and that they are going to lead full lives and that it is up to all of us to ensure that those kids get access to everything that the most powerful would want for their own children, it becomes unthinkable to imagine saying something like, but it works, and pointing only to test scores, right? Uh, test scores do not predict lifetime happiness. They do not predict uh, a kind of full and rich life that young people want for themselves. They don't predict predict civic readiness uh, or an ability to participate in our democracy. Um, there's so much that they absolutely do not predict, either because we don't have the evidence or because we have evidence that there is no relationship there. Um, and so I think it's both important to think about all of the outcomes that are not measured and to then push back and say, well, you know, it works at producing test scores, but what about all these other things? And I think it's also important to talk about the process of education mattering because young people spend about 13 years of their lives in schools. And if we take them seriously and we value them, uh, then the process matters every bit as much as the outcome. So we not only then can push back against a very narrow set of measure out measured outcomes, but also against a process that may be dehumanizing or undermining the dignity of young people and the, the worth that they have. Teach Like a Champion has many, many defenders, and typically they are the same people who think that your job, Jack, is a complete waste of time. And I am talking, <laughs> of course, about schools of education. And I actually, um, I, I found a perfect example of this on the internet. So I'm going to share it with you now. This was a response to Alana Horn's um, Twitter thread. And it was called something like, no, we're not going to cancel Teach Like a Champion. 
Anyone who's been to a teacher education college and who picks up a copy of Teach Like a Champion will immediately notice a contrast between Lamov's specific and detailed observations and advice and the kind of non-specific ideological navel-gazing that constitutes much of the content of education courses. Pretty sure he was one of your students, Jack. <laughs> Lamov's is a practical guide written for teachers. It is not interested in condemning neoliberalism or quoting French philosophers, dot, dot. If I had known, Jack, that that's what you do in your class, I would be more interested in what you do. This is a really long-standing critique against college and university-based teacher preparation programs, that they don't prepare students to be ready on day one. And in many cases, that's actually true. Um, but we can explain this by looking at the way that teachers develop in their first year on the job or in their first two or three years on the job. And that's to say that the things that teachers need in order to be ready on day one, they actually will pick up on the job. That's why college and university-based preparation programs have over the years uniformly adopted a kind of classroom-based practicum for teachers, right? That they are going to pick that stuff up naturally in a real-world setting. But then we need to think about the long careers that teachers will hopefully have, and we need to think about what are the things that teachers need to be prepared to think about over the course of their careers. The structure of the profession is such that teachers are not constantly coming back to get re-educated. Um, they just, they don't have the time during the school year. There isn't the kind of structural relationship with colleges and universities. Um, certainly there is ongoing PD, but we could raise a lot of questions about the nature of that PD. And so colleges and universities generally have about one year to cram everything in. And why is it just one year? Well, because teachers don't make a ton of money, so we can't ask them to spend years foregoing income and paying for their own training. Um, and the fact that uh, this is a mass occupation where we always are in desperate need of lots of teachers. So we've got one year to give them everything that they need in order to be ready on day one and in order to be ready in year 10, in year 20, in year 30, to be leaders, uh, to be you know uh, the heads of departments, to be change agents at the school district and state level. Um, and so this focus on you know the sort of practical tips is really a kind of red herring there. Uh, you know, the, much of that work is being done. It's just not being done in the classroom. It's being done in an actual K-12 classroom setting. Well, I happen to have um, an excellent book here. I'm going to hold it up, Jack, so you can see. It's called How Schools Work, and it's by one Arnie Duncan. And um, and this is a one a key part of his argument is that you know, like there once upon a time. Schools of education like yours were pretty good, but then something in the, something happened in the seventies. You know, they make this turn towards theory. They decide it's not their job to train teachers anymore, and um, and that this is in his mind like this is really where just things hit the skids, right? And so the and that he um, he's a big proponent, by the way, of a Chicago variant of a relay or teach like a champion. And what I thought was really interesting about this is that on the one hand, he's arguing that we need to train teachers more like we train lawyers and doctors. Um, but on the other hand, you know, they would think that was just crazy to say like, okay, we're we're not going to bother talking about the theory of you know anatomy. 
<laughs> yeah, well, it's it's both historically and sociologically illiterate. So historically, if we look back, the criticisms against college and university-based teacher preparation were mounted well before the 70s. We see those arise in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and they're quite vociferously negative about college and university-based teacher preparation. And the reason for that is that finally, after half a century of efforts, um, a real system for educating teachers had been built. Prior to that, they were uh, you know, either poorly trained, uh, unevenly trained, or not trained at all, uh, often by these sort of fly-by-night organizations. So the shift into colleges and universities was one that basically every professional organization supported. The shift towards a kind of completion-based, program completion-based licensure rather than you know passing a test that is equivalent to many of the licensure tests that teachers have to take today as kind of the last step in their licensure um, was a major triumph, right? That yes, you probably do need more than whatever the random content knowledge that ends up on one of these multiple choice tests is able to measure. Uh, and then it's sociologically illiterate because we know that the education of young people involves the ability to create relationships with them and that those relationships are often mediated by race, class, gender, the very sorts of identity characteristics that critics who are often on the right like to lampoon colleges of education for engaging in discussion about. And I find that particularly ironic at this historical moment as the nation is once again confronting its white supremacy where, uh, you know, you see departments and colleges uh, that are really trying to rethink the way that they are addressing or not addressing race. Well, colleges of education are often places that have actually done some of this work. And so the fact that it has for so long been lampooned, I think, ought to be held up in this particular moment as further evidence that those people are really not taking race seriously in education or anywhere in our society. Well, our next guest happens to be a brand new teacher. Layla Truhoft Ali attended the University of Chicago's Urban Teacher Education Program. She did her student teaching in public schools around Chicago, and she just finished her first year teaching sixth grade reading and writing at a Chicago public school in Inglewood on the city's southwest side. So, how did it go? Well, it was a roller coaster. Um, we had the strike in October, and then obviously we went remote in March. So there's been a lot of adjustment. And of course, that's on top of the regular challenges of being a first-year teacher. At the same time, I feel like I've learned so much and grown so much as a teacher and met some great kids, and I'm very excited to go back knowing what I know and give it a second go. And of course, I couldn't help myself. I had to ask Layla if in her first year as a teacher, she, well, taught like a champion. No. <laughs> I, I did not teach like a champion. 
Layla discovered Teach Like a Champion a few years ago. She was a student at Yale, and she knew that she wanted to be a teacher. So when she came across an ad for teachers from the Uncommon Charter Schools Network, that would be the network founded by Doug Lamov, she applied. I was applying for summer teaching jobs, and I applied for one at Uncommon Schools, which is a charter school network that Doug Lamov founded, the author of Teach Like a Champion. And it it's a the interview process is pretty involved and they sent us some videos of teachers and some, you know, excerpts from Teach Like a Champion and all this. And I remember I watched the video the first time and I was like mesmerized. I was like, this is amazing. All the kids are watching so quietly. And the teacher was very performative. And then I watched that video about six more times in a row. So by watch number seven, I started to notice So I sort of went to the other poll. I started to notice little interactions with kids or little moments. I sort of stopped watching the teacher and started watching the kids. And I started to feel really troubled. I couldn't find the video that Layla watched over and over, but similar videos are everywhere. Here's another uncommon video featuring a soon-to-be kindergarten teacher being trained in the performative techniques that Layla was so captivated by. In any major competition, the details are what separate the champions from the contenders. Top musicians, athletes, and debaters will rehearse until they're ready Top school leaders are no different. Well, okay, yes. great. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. I'm just saying, how did you feel? Up, step out. Is that the language Ms. Caps was saying, step out or to the side? However you okay. want to do it. Okay. You got it. Okay. Oh, Andrew. Okay. <laughs> Scholars, we are getting ready so to transition to our very own classroom. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. In this clip, Allison is a new teacher getting ready for day one with her brand new kindergarten students. Rather than simply talking about what to do, she is rehearsing every action as her peers act as her students. Say, stand up, you stand, and step to the side and haul. My turn again. Stand up, step to the side, haul. And the more that Layla watched videos like this one, the more uncomfortable they made her. After a few watches, I noticed little things like the glare the teacher gave a kid when he didn't respond the right way or didn't know what to repeat back. Even a movement that I, watching the video, couldn't see, but she'd see a movement and there'd be some like redirection that was very harsh. So it was this very strange kind of like, happy-go-lucky performance, and then there were these moments of very quick, harsh turnaround. So, Jack, there is an aspect to this story that you're really going to appreciate. When Layla was a student at Yale, she was interested in a very particular subject. Do you have any idea what that subject was? I'm guessing from the look in your face, Jennifer, that it's one that you hold in low esteem and which is probably extremely important. Uh, So I'm going to guess the history of education. And once again, Jack, you would be correct. That's right. So she was fascinated by the history of education and she had a professor who she really liked. And at one point, the professor recommended that she take a look at a book. And I'm hoping that, that you can fill us in on the 
book. It's by James Anderson, and it's called The Education of Blacks in the South. And it's a really sort of pivotal history. Yeah. So, you know, one of the pieces of that book that is so relevant for this discussion is related to uh, the education of blacks in the South by whites in the North and uh, the concentrated effort by whites to engage in a form of racial uplift for people who they viewed as their inferiors. And this often uh, is discussed through a really clear case study, which is of Booker T. Washington's educational program at Hampton Institute. And this was ostensibly a teacher training institution, but the work that teachers were engaged in, in preparing for their futures as educators, uh, was really menial in nature and certainly vocationally oriented. Uh, they would engage in manual labor and uh, very little of what we would traditionally think of as teacher preparation. And so this kind of example then shows us the perhaps mixed motives of white philanthropists, white education reformers who are seeking to assist people uh, who they very much view as other than themselves. And I think, you know, there's a long history of critiquing this. And I think one of the clearest ways that that's been done in the last two decades is by Lisa Delpit in talking about the education of other people's children. Uh, so, you know, however well-intended white reformers have been across time, um, that really uh, there's a critique that can always be leveled against them for engaging in a, a sort of different approach than they would if they were preparing schools for their own children. Thank you, Jack. Now back to Layla. At the same time that she was reading and studying Teach Like a Champion, she was also immersed in education history. And she observed something that shocked her. Doug Lamov's approach looked a lot like a post-Civil War teacher training model that was explicitly designed to maintain a racial hierarchy. There was even a parallel role played by white philanthropists and businessmen. Remaking teacher training was a pet cause for deep-pocketed donors 100 years ago, just like it is today. Layla wrote a fantastic essay about what she learned called Teach Like It's 1895 that I'll include in the show notes for this episode. Now, here's Layla again. You have this moment right after emancipation of a huge flourishing of educational access. Samuel Armstrong sees this and he's not opposed to education, but he's concerned, as are many white elites, that free people are going to take this education and rise to positions of power. They're going to become congressional leaders. They're going to rebel against labor conditions. Remember, this is in this is leading up to the, the Gilded Era and in the midst of it. And it's also in a time when the South is rapidly industrializing. So there's a real concern about factory labor. The solution that Samuel Armstrong seized upon was a kind of teacher training that instilled behavioral norms like self-discipline, compliance, and diligence in Black teachers, which they were supposed to pass on to their students. Hampton is a teacher training program for Black leaders. While white teachers are being trained 
to elicit critical thinking and sophisticated writing and public speaking because white students, even lower class students, are seen as future managers in the industrializing economy. Black teachers, the teacher training program is mostly manual labor. And the idea is that it's not skilled labor where the teachers are actually learning a trade that could improve their own economic status or that they could teach to students to improve their economic status. It's unskilled labor. And the idea is that the teachers are going to learn self-discipline and obedience and diligence from manual labor. And that's all the training that they need to teach Black children. So, Jack, I think that one of the things that's kind of confounding about this is that the Hampton approach that you talked a little bit about and Layla was telling us about was really explicit about the fact the fact that that blacks in the South, both teachers and the kids that they're tasked with educating, are viewed as inferior and are being prepared for the lowest rungs, right? For like at most these sort of uh industrial jobs. Whereas the teach like a champion um, approach, the relay grad school approach is very much steeped in the language of uplift and college preparation. And so even though you still see this, this sort of key role played by white philanthropists, the argument in favor of teaching kids this way is about helping them, it's about social mobility. One potentially helpful way to think about this is to think about the difference between personal prejudice, individual prejudice and bigotry, versus systemic inequality and structural racism. So when we're looking at the educational reforms led by Northerners during Reconstruction, so this would be projects funded by the Rosenwald Fund and others, there were both present, right? There was this sort of systemic inequality in place, as well as a great deal of individual prejudice, even if it was being muted in some ways by these northern white philanthropists and reformers. Today, I think that the personal bigotry and prejudice has really much less to do with the way that white people are crafting programs for non-white people and particularly African-Americans. But the systemic inequality piece is there and the willingness to accept segregated schools, the willingness to reduce and narrow the curriculum for the purpose of working within an unequal system to provide what little opportunity can be provided, I think that really shows us how structural inequality remains present and white people just have a much harder time seeing it. Just a note, if you're interested in learning more about the historical parallels that Layla has been describing, may I recommend the reading list that we put together for our Patreon supporters? Just go to patreon.com slash haveyouheardpodcast to sign up. Now back to Layla. One of the things she told me is that despite her criticism of Teach Like a Champion, she gets why it's so popular. Classroom management is a huge issue for new teachers, and they're often unaware that there are alternatives to Lamov's approach. It's really important to know that we have other concrete practical tools, right? I love Responsive Classroom. I have one of my favorite books I have right here, Culturally Responsive Teaching in the Brain by Zaretta Hammond. I, like, I get, as someone who just finished the first year, 
I get that we're all concerned about management. We all want to create an ordered and safe and structured learning environment for our kids. But I think people are too quick to say that Teach Like a Champion is the only way to get there and to be uncritical about it. We started out this episode hearing from math education professor Alana Horn and talking about the concept of carceral pedagogy. Well, I want to bring in one more person who has a few things to say on the topic. My name is Joe Trust. I am a father of two and a three-year-old and a six-week-old. Um, I'm also uh, a principal uh, in my fifth year as a principal of a middle school in San Francisco. Once upon a time, I was a high school Spanish teacher, and I originally grew up in the Tenderloin of San Francisco. Way back before he became a middle school principal, Joe taught at a charter school in Oakland, and that's where he first encountered Teach Like a Champion. I was at a charter school and, uh, you know, we got the book. Somehow that book made it to the charter school and was all through the charter group that I was in. And we were not only reading the book, we were also watching these videos. And my first reaction, even then, this is like almost 10, 12 years ago, was like it felt militaristic, at least some of the stuff. Not all of it, right? There's nothing wrong with saying we want kids to try their best. That's cool, right? But this idea of like 100%, no excuses, no failure. Everybody's looking at me, track the speaker, moon with me. Like that shit is, uh, it's militaristic and it's dehumanizing, right? Being without a lens of a, a, a theoretical framework and thinking like, okay, that looks pretty cool. But then now you zoom out, right? At least the videos that I've seen, white teacher, room for the brown children, telling the brown children what they need to do. And it's about, and I've seen it be about compliance, right? About follow through, about 100%. And the question really is, when that shit doesn't happen, what do you do? And when people think that their job as teachers is to come in and have that sort of a dynamic, that's the problem, right? Because there's, there's kids, there's thousands and millions of kids that tell you they're not going to have that. But the first thing that Joe will tell you is that schools don't just have a teach like a champion problem. After he saw the video of that encounter in Central Park between the African-American birder and the white woman who called the cops on him, Joe shared his own epic tweet thread about how call the cops culture is woven through our education system. But you see it in real time, in real life, on video, and it, it is it's extremely triggering and enraging. You know, it just pissed me off. And being an educator, I thought about, well, what is, how does this show up in schools? Because it definitely shows up in schools, right? Um, this mentality of wanting to always be right, wanting to put people or kids in their place, wanting to have the last word, and really just subjugating someone, right? And wanting them to submit to your power. You know what I mean? That shows up in schools all the time, right? Irrespective of race and class. But you add race and class into the mix, and it's definitely showing up. That shit is real in in schools where we have a majority of white folks in schools to serve kids of color, especially in the public sector, right? I mean, the statistics, yes, 80, 80-something percent white women, right? And public schools are majority and more and more majority kids of color. So I kind of really was just playing with this idea of, like, what does it look like in schools? Take the issue of cops in schools, the subject of our last episode. Well, Joe wants them out of schools, but he sees the issue as being much broader. When, we're, when we get to a situation where we have to call the police, so much has happened wrong before that. Police can never solve a problem that's deeper, and that's not their job, 
but we call them in to do that the same way teachers call out for support from somebody who is like that police figure in the school, a counselor, a dean, a principal, the expulsion board, what have you, right? But it's about those deeper things that are underneath of, is this kid engaged? Is this kid connected? Does this kid feel valued? Is their perspective being centered in the curriculum or not? And oftentimes it's not. And who do we call the police for? Kids of color, poor kids, immigrant kids, right? Kids who backtalk, what are they talking back to? some sort of dehumanization and subjugation oftentimes. And they'll tell you that the shit stinks a lot of times and we don't want to hear it. Right. So we say, no, it doesn't stink. And they say, yes, it does. And we say, stop talking back, get out of my class. I don't care about your class. I'll knock some shit over in the process. And all of a sudden we're calling the police. Way back at the start of this episode, we asked if it's time to cancel teach like a champion. Well, there's a bigger question that everyone we've heard from is wrestling with. What do we do now? Joe Truss has some answers. In addition to being a middle school principal, he also has a side project called Culturally Responsive Leadership. He writes, and he does trainings for teachers who, as he puts it, want to go deep. There's a lot of seminars out there, and that's cool, but I like to create learning experiences for adults, right? So I kind of expanded this 90-minute in-service professional development to a full day. Right. So when you can sit down for seven hours with people, you can get deep, you can get real, you can unpack some of the stuff we can kind of dig through the cobwebs and skeletons. Right. And in our minds and our, our socialization process. Right. That we've been socializing to this bankrupt system. Then we get to answer this question or ask this question of what do I do now? I don't want to be a white supremacist. Right. I don't want to have racism in schools. I don't stand for that. Now, at least we have a clear question of do you stand for it or you don't. Now that you say you don't stand for it, what do we do? Those trainings, by the way, are all being done online now because of the pandemic. And you can find out more and sign up at culturallyresponsiveleadership.com. And Jack and I will be right back to talk about broken windows schooling and reveal the subject of this episode's In the Weeds topic for our Patreon supporters. One of the things that I learned reading Layla's essay was that in the 2010 edition of Teach Like a Champion, Doug Lamoff offered, uh, you know, pretty enthusiastic embrace of the idea of, of a broken windows approach to schooling. And people are know what that means in regards to policing. And with schooling, it it means basically that you, if you quash small. Um, instances of disobedience, then you keep um, kids from, you know, derailing and spiraling out of control until they finally, you know, sort of fall off of the path to college. But by the 2015 volume, all mentions of broken windows are gone. And Jack, I was thinking about that again this week, because you really, you see a kind of an effort by a lot of these charter networks to grapple um, with how to grapple with things like discipline and um, and compliance um, in this moment of of Black Lives Matter, and and I wonder what your take on all of this is. I think it speaks to the importance of public engagement, and I think it further makes the case for democratic control of public education. Um, but you know, in fairness to an organization like KIPP, I think it's worth pointing out that they have built a system that 
enables them to actually make some changes. So it isn't simply that they've got a particular culture and they uh, won't be able to do anything about it. That culture is the product of very intentional organization. And even if the culture can be found to be problematic, uh, the forms for producing culture, I think, are actually pretty enviable. So KIPP has developed its own curricular resources and pedagogical strategies and cultural standards. Uh, you know, KIPP has its own approach to human resources work, where the central office helps screen candidates and works to build school capacity for identifying strong fits between teachers and its schools. Um, for teachers, KIPP offers site-specific coaching and regional professional development. Uh, it has its own principal training instit institute and leadership program. And so the fact that they have really built this architecture I think means that they do have the power to change. Um, they really have the sort of opposite of what we often see in public education, which is a complete decoupling between leadership and classroom practice. And so while it may be that KIPP really needs to rethink its practices specifically with regard to discipline and enforcing compliance, um, you know, controlling students in a really heavy-handed way. Uh, I think they've got the architecture in place to do it. And so I think it'll be really interesting to watch over the next few years to see how the culture of KIPP schools shifts. So, Jack, I understand what you're saying, but I think it's going to be a much tougher row for these, these networks that have really... Their whole reputation, so much of it has to do with their ability to generate really impressive test scores. Um, so you think about like a success academy. And I do not see Eva Moskowitz sending around the kind of letter and, you know, the call for urgent reflection. In fact, she's already gotten into trouble. And, you know, part of the problem is that they have settled, they figured out something that works. Um, and part of the reason that it works for them is that because these networks churn through an enormous number of teachers, they they need a really elaborate system of behavior management in which every action is pegged to a reward or a punishment. And so, so like, yeah, you can have, you know, you can have this architecture that you're talking about, but if it depends on being able to plug teachers into it really fast, I kind of wonder, I wonder how far they're really going to get with that. I think that's a really good point, Jennifer. Oh, thank and you, Jack. <laughs> and it may be that, you know, chickens come home to roost with regard to a, you know, really hearty embrace of test-based accountability and, uh, you know, a deprofessionalizing of teaching. Well, just a reminder that we offer bonus content for our Patreon subscribers. If you go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast, you'll find all the cool extras that you can get just by throwing a couple dollars a month our way. Things like custom reading list and this episode's reading list is going to be particularly rich. <laughs> <laughs> and Jennifer, I don't know if you saw this, I tweeted out today uh, on the day that we're recording this episode. I don't actually offer. follow you on Twitter. 
Oh, well, I don't follow you either, so uh, I didn't tag you or anything. Um, I extended an offer without asking your permission uh, to our Patreon subscribers that uh, we would run a virtual book club for them when uh, A Wolf of the Schoolhouse Door comes out. And that December is available, 1st, baby. <laughs> available for pre-order now and will hopefully be out before its drop-dead deadline date of December 1st. In the meantime, if you're interested in bonus content, go to Patreon and you can then join us in a special segment that we like to call In the Weeds, um, where we just sort of talk about whatever we want. And Jack, today's topic is the crazy debate about reopening the schools. I'm calling it Reopening the Schools WTF. Uh, for those of you who are interested in supporting the show without participating in an unfair capitalist economy, there are a few ways that you can do it. You can give us a review wherever you're getting your podcasts. That helps people find the show. You can tell your friends and colleagues about the show. It often helps if you send them a link to your favorite episode and encourage them to subscribe. Uh, the more subscribers we get, the more ears we reach, and the more likely we are to change the world. How do you like that, Jennifer? Is I, that a good sign-off? I am inspired. Yeah, that's right. Okay, well, so that's it uh, for uh, for Have You Heard? I don't know how to do this. I'm Jack Schneider. And I'm Jennifer Berkshire. See you next time. 